How do you read your Bible during a trial? Do trials affect the way you read your Bible, what you get out of it? Said differently, when you're in the midst of a trial, can you hear God speak to you from the Scriptures more clearly or less clearly? Think about your experience. My own experience is rather varied. Sometimes God's Word brings comfort and clarity to what's going on in my life. At other times, the words on the pages seem to blur as I read them. Physical pain can dull the senses of perception. When I have a pounding headache, I find it difficult to focus, certainly difficult to read. But is there something in the way that we handle the Bible when we're in trials, or the ways that we might be tempted to handle the Bible poorly when we're in the midst of trials that trips us up? What does James have to say about this? The main topic of James chapter 1 is trials. This topic runs through the whole chapter. If you remember back to last week, Pastor Ken helped us see how the first two sections fit together, and I'll try to continue that thread. James opens with this command to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And then in verse 5, he starts talking about wisdom. And we might think, well, he's talking about something different. But I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago when we opened up that passage that he recognizes that what you need and what you probably lack as you go through a trial is wisdom. So you need to get wisdom when you face trials of various kinds. And how do you do that? Well, you ask God for it. And then in verses 9 through 11, he seems to introduce the rich and the poor suddenly out of nowhere. But Pastor Ken helped us see that being wealthy and being poor each present their own set of trials that we might struggle with. And that seems to be why James introduces them at this point. When it comes to trials, the playing field is quite level regardless of your material prosperity. And then, sure enough, in verse 12, he actually mentions the word trial again, and that helps us see that he's still talking about the same thing here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, James says. And the promise of the crown of life to the one who endures the trials gives us the eternal perspective we need to keep in mind during trials. But then in verses 13 to 15, he starts talking about temptation. And again, we might think that this is something different. But Pastor Ken mentioned that that's actually the same word in Greek. In verse 12, the noun form is translated trial. And then in verse 13, the verb form is translated tempted. Every trial that we face comes with its own set of temptations. And the way James characterized temptation is not something that comes from from outside of you. It comes from inside of you. It doesn't come from the devil, doesn't come from culture, comes from you. The source of temptation is your desire. This is the accurate perspective we need to keep in mind during trials. And if you think about it, when you're in the midst of a trial, you might desire very many things that are good things, perhaps. You might desire for the trial to end, which is a good thing. But in that desire, you could be led to sin. Think about it. If you want the trial to end, you might start trying to manipulate people who are causing the trial or who are causing you pain. Or you might try to manipulate God with your words. And so your desires conceive sin, and James warns that if you keep going down that road, sin will produce death. James says emphatically that these temptations do not come from God. Don't think that. And so that turns his attention in verse 16 to having a thankful perspective. What does, what does come from God in the midst of our trials? Only good things. And isn't that a temptation that we face when we're going through trials, to think that God is angry with us, that God is punishing us somehow? But no, when you're in the midst of a trial, God is giving good gifts throughout the trial. And the challenge is that we would remember and believe that in the midst of a trial. And then in verse 18, James turns to the great good gift, the gift of our very life as a child of God. Verse 18 says, of his own will, by God's own desire and decision, he brought us forth. He caused us to be born by the word of truth. And as Pastor Ken pointed out, this is the gospel message that brought you to life. You see, God uses the gospel to give life to dead sinners. That's how he works. 
He uses that message about Jesus' perfect life of obedience in your place, His sacrificial death for your sins, His glorious resurrection from the dead, and exaltation to the throne of God. That's the gospel message, and that's what God uses to save people. And then when we come to verse 19 this morning, we might be tempted yet again to think that James is changing the subject suddenly. Look at verse 19. We use it often as a proverb. We quote it and think that it's talking about one thing, and it seems that James has changed the subject drastically. Verse 19, James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now, haven't you applied that to your interpersonal relationships? When you think of that verse in your mind, you're probably thinking, well, when somebody's talking to me, I need to be eager to listen to what they have to say. I need to care very much about what they have to say and not as much about what I want to say. I need to be quick to listen, eager to listen to my wife, to my boss, to my friend. And I need to be slow to speak. I need to be not so much caught up in what I'm going to say in response to what they have to say. And then if I don't like what they have to say, I need to be very slow to anger. I need to hear them out and give them the benefit of the doubt, right? I think we've all applied it that way, but I'd like to suggest to you that that's not what's on James's mind here. He hasn't changed the subject. Instead, he's talking about the word that he just spoke of, the word of truth, the gospel. He goes into a section that focuses on how we respond to God's word. And I think verse 19 is very much caught up in that. And in light of the larger context of chapter 1, James is probably helping us think through how we need to respond to God's Word in the midst of trials specifically. The question on the table, I think, for James is, how do you avoid giving in to the temptations that arise during trials? In temptation, if your desires can lead you into sin in the midst of a trial... How do you stop that process? How do you abort the process that James describes here? James says that it's how you respond to God's Word that is key, particularly how you respond to the gospel in your Christian life. So let's dive into the section and see what he says. Verses 19 to 21 focus on the command to welcome the Word. Let's read those three verses together and see what he says. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So again, in verse 19, I don't think that he's just grabbing hold of a proverbial saying and talking about our interpersonal relationships all of a sudden. Instead, he's talking about the way that we respond to God's Word, particularly the gospel, the word of truth that he just mentioned in verse 18. Let every person, and remember, when you see that little word let in James or in the New Testament more generally, it's a command. It's an imperative. Each person must be quick to hear. Quick to hear what? Quick to hear the word of truth. Quick to hear the gospel. That is to say that yours and my prime directive needs to be to hear again and again and again the good news, the gospel that saved us in the first place. We need to be eager to listen to it, ready to listen to it, ready to hear it all the time. We need to be slow to speak. When we come to the Bible, we can oftentimes have an idea in our minds that we already know what this means, this passage that I'm reading or listening to preached. I already know what this says. I already know what this is about. We're already talking internally. We're speaking about what the passage means in our minds rather than letting the Bible speak and letting God's Word speak to us and rule over us. We come with our own preconceived notions and we need to submit those to what's being said. Or, as David Platt says, don't we often approach God's Word talking and not listening? Don't we often come to God's Word thinking, here's what I want it to say. Don't we often come to God's Word looking to justify ourselves? We're like people in an argument who are not really listening to one another. 
But instead, we're consumed with formulating what we're going to say in response. We are not quick to hear and slow to speak, but loath to listen and anxious to argue. And sometimes we can even respond with anger when we hear God's Word. God's Word cuts sometimes when it challenges our preconceived notions, our opinions, or our habits that we just can't seem to shake off. Sometimes we might respond with anger when we hear something we don't really like to think about God or that we really don't want to do with our lives. I think James is actually drawing on the Old Testament here. Now, most people would point to some of the Proverbs that talk again about how it's important for you to listen to your neighbor or not to be quick to speak to your neighbor. You can pull Proverbs all over the place that support those ideas. And all of that is good and true and right. But I think James is actually drawing from a different passage in the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 says this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. You see, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes is talking to an Old Testament Israelite, and he's saying, when you come to the temple, come with a desire to hear God speak. That's your prime directive when you come to the temple. Come saying, I want to hear God speak to me. And he warns against how an Israelite might come to the temple just wanting to talk to God. He's warning against the desire to think, I really want to ask God for help. I really want to tell God what I think. I really want to talk to God. And the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, saying, your prime directive needs to be to listen to God. It needs to be more important to you that you hear what God says than that you have God hear what you have to say. Now, he's not saying don't come and pray, don't want to pray. He's not saying that. He says, let your words be few, not zero, few. And let me apply this to us as Christians. When we come together in this place, our prime directive ought to be, I want to hear what God has to say. I want to hear God speak to me in this place. But as we talked about when we looked at what the Bible teaches about Christian corporate worship at the beginning of the year, this desire takes an others-oriented shape. Our prime directive ought to be that we want each other to hear what God has to say. But we often come with other desires. We often come eager, excited to come and sing or to come and pray or to come in fellowship, and all of those things are good. But there's a greater need that we all have, and it's to hear God speak. That should be the driver. That should be the prime motivation for why we come. We want to hear God speak, not to make sure that He hears what we have to say. James doesn't say, let your words be none at all either. He doesn't say, don't speak at all. He says, be slow to speak. We need to listen to God's Word. We need to hear it and make sure that we're responding appropriately. And that's where James will turn in the next paragraph. But before we're done, let's think about this a little bit in this place, as we've talked about, but also in our devotional reading, like when we're reading our Bible at home. We need to be eager to listen to God speak as we read the Scriptures and as we hear them taught and preached. Sometimes we can get to where we have favorite parts of the Bible that we return to repeatedly, and we don't really touch some other places, like Ecclesiastes, for example, or the Song of Solomon, or the book of Revelation, perhaps. We're not eager to go and hear what God has to say in those places. Maybe we think it's too complicated, or maybe we don't see its relevance for our lives today. But we need to be eager to hear all that God has to say not just portions, not just the parts that we like. And we need to be pursuing that, not only in our daily Bible reading, but also in our church setting from the preaching of the Word and the teaching in our Sunday school classes. We need to be focused on the whole of God's Word here. 
Well, finally, James says, be slow to anger. And I think he's still talking about our response to God's Word. If when you hear the Scriptures or you read your Bible and you get angry about what you heard or what you read, you're wrong in your response. Maybe you've responded that way when you read James 1-2 while you're going through a trial. James adds a reason for this in verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And I like the way the old NIV, the 1984 edition, puts this verse, for man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. That's what he's talking about here. If you hear God's word and you find yourself rising up in anger, you need to check yourself because you're responding poorly. You're not doing the right thing. Now, I can remember a time in my college years, I think I was a freshman in college, and I was reading through the book of Romans, maybe for the first time all the way through, and I came to Romans chapter 9, and I read verse 18 that says, God has mercy on whomever He wills and hardens whomever He wills. And then I read a couple of verses later, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And I threw my Bible across the room. Literally, physically, immaturely. But that's exactly what I did. I responded in anger. I have since come to terms with that passage. But at the time, I was angry because I thought, how can my God have those kinds of rights and I not have any? How can that be? I was outraged. And I was wrong. And isn't it the case that we often come to the Bible with an attitude of standing over it and judging it? If it says something about God that I don't like, well, I just won't read that part anymore. It's not the attitude that James commends here. We must be quick to hear, eager to listen to whatever it says. Verse 21 goes on to give us this command that we need to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And he's talking about this righteous life that God demands. And if our anger won't get it, the question is, well, what will? What will get it? How do we respond righteously? How do we live a righteous life? On the negative side, James says that we must get rid of and separate ourselves from the uncleanness and wickedness both in us and around us. We must live a life of repentance. We need less sin. That's the negative side. What's the positive side? More gospel. He says, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Receive. That's a word for welcoming. Welcome the Word. Don't just listen to it. Welcome the Word. Welcome the Word into your heart, into your life. Welcome its authority over you. Welcome it with meekness. That's the opposite attitude of anger. That's the opposite attitude of standing over the Scriptures. It's an attitude that comes to the Bible and says, whatever this book tells me is true, I believe it. And whatever this book tells me to do, I will seek to do it. It's an attitude of teachability when we come to the Scriptures. That I might be wrong about what I think this passage means. Every time I reread a passage of Scripture for the hundredth or the thousandth time, I need to come with an attitude that says, I might not have understood this correctly or completely in the past. I need to be coming to this book allowing it to have free reign over my thinking and my living. That's meekness in this case. Welcome the implanted word. What does he mean by implanted? He's building on Jesus' parable of the sower. He's using a metaphor of what you do with a seed. You put it in the ground. It's implanted inside of us. He's also borrowing this imagery from the Old Testament, the promises of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31.33 gives us one such promise. There are others. Jeremiah 31.33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. 
I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. See, the imagery of putting the law inside of you is a metaphor that's intended to mean he will enable you to live it out. He will enable you to believe and obey it. That's something that the old Mosaic covenant did not have. The people of Israel were unable to obey God. And so God promised a day, I will make a new covenant. And I hope you know, Christian, that this promise is for you. This is the reality that you live in. God has put His law within you. It's in you right now. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God's Word is in you. It was put there the moment you began to trust Jesus, fulfilling this covenant promise. And James says the same thing. This implanted Word, he says it's able to save your souls. Now, don't think when you see the word soul that it's just talking about the spiritual part of us. Some translations don't even put it in. They say this word is able to save you. Because this word is a word that means your whole self, body and soul. All together, your whole person is being saved by this word. The gospel that is implanted in you has power to save you from start to finish and everything in between. This is the same idea that Paul teaches us in Romans 1.16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's the power of God. It's the power that God uses to save us from start to finish and everything in between. God continually uses the gospel message. He speaks it into us. And that's the power that saved us in the past, but it's also the power that continues to save us. Now, what does that mean? I think it means something like God is keeping us safe. He has rescued us from the slavery of sin and death, But now He has promised that He will continue to save us, meaning He will keep us safe throughout our lives. How does He do it? He uses the gospel, the same word that He used to bring us to life in the first place. It's the same gospel that He will use to ensure that we will cross the finish line on the last day, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and hear Him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. It's the gospel that's the reason he will be able to say that to you. But James says, receive the implanted word. That's weird. Let's just acknowledge the weirdness of it for just a moment. It's implanted in me, but he says, go on receiving it. You have to receive it again and again and again and again. Why? How? What does it mean? Well, I'd like to read an extended quote from John Piper, who compares this to oxygen. And I think his explanation is really helpful, so I'm just going to let him do it. But before I read his words, I was interested to find that Our bodies are made up of something like over 65% oxygen. It's just, we could say, implanted in us. And yet, we still need to breathe every day, all day. John Piper says it this way. Receive it, this implanted word. In other words... If you treat the Word of God like your kidneys, you're making a big mistake. Your kidneys are implanted in you by your first birth. But you do not go on receiving your kidneys. They just sit there doing their work, and you rarely think about them. But James says, receive the implanted Word. It is already in you, and you should receive it. It is rooted and planted in you. It brought you life. It is there, sustaining that life by feeding faith in Christ. But it is not there like kidneys. 
It is there like oxygen. It gives life, and in giving life, it makes you breathe. And in breathing, you receive oxygen. No one says, I have oxygen. Look how well it is working in me. It makes me alive. I don't need to receive oxygen anymore. The implanted word is powerful. It produces life and breathing. It takes over the spiritual diaphragm and demands oxygen. It demands the life-giving external word. If the word is implanted in you, you can't hold your breath forever. The implanted word will, sooner or later, conquer and be replenished. You will receive the word again, and you will love it. Finally, I would simply try to illustrate what it is to receive the implanted word with the hope of inspiring you to do it every day. So that if you miss a day, you will feel like your spiritual lungs are going to burst with desire for another breath. The gospel is implanted in us, and we need to breathe it in every day. You never outgrow your need for the gospel. You never graduate to a class where that is not the center of the curriculum. The center of every ongoing growth in knowledge has Christ crucified, risen, received by faith alone like a little child at the center of the curriculum. So my biblical exhortation is every day with meekness receive the word of God. That is every day be in the Bible. Read your Bible every day with the gospel at the center. Breathe the Bible. Don't try to hold your breath from Monday to Wednesday. Breathe every day. The challenge for us is to understand how do we do that? How do we read the Bible and all of its parts through the Jesus lens, we might say? There's a book by that title, How to Read the Bible Through the Jesus Lens. I commend it to you. It helps you see how every book of Scripture, all 66 of them, points to Jesus and the gospel. And we have to learn to see it that way. But that's the key to receiving the benefit that we need from reading our Bibles, is to see it as connected to and opening up the gospel message for us. That's where the power is. And so we need that all the time, every day, in fact. But it's not enough just to read it or hear it. James goes on and says we must do it. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Don Carson says this, it's this message of the gospel that comes to you and still transforms you, saves you, and teaches you that you are accepted before God because of Jesus, not because you've led a superb Bible study or done anything else. You are accepted in the beloved because of what Christ has done, not because you attended yet one more prayer meeting. James says that we have to live in it. We have to obey it. Now, when we talk about the gospel, we tend to focus on the declarations of the gospel, the announcement of what God has done for us in Christ, the life, death, resurrection, enthronement, and promise of future return of Jesus. All that is wrapped up in the gospel, and it's right to focus our attention there. But that announcement of news has implications obligations that it lays upon us. Because of what God has done, therefore, we should live a certain way. That's the structure of almost all of Paul's New Testament letters. He tells us what God's done for us, and then he puts a big fat therefore, and then starts telling us, now go out and do stuff. That's the logic of the gospel. It has commands. It has a law we might even say. And that's what James is going to say in this passage in just a couple of verses. James is certainly drawing again from the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the image which our children so enthusiastically sang about and depicted for us earlier. Jesus spoke of hearing His words and doing them. That's a wise person. That's a wise person who is enabled by God's Word to endure trials, to bring it back into James chapter 1. But James also points here to the danger of deceiving ourselves. 
We can be self-deluded non-responders. We can listen to the Word being preached. We can read the Bible every day. And we can fail to do it. And in failing to do it, we are deluding ourselves significantly. One writer says, It is possible to be unfailingly regular in Bible reading, but to achieve no more than to have moved the bookmark forward. Or I would add, checked off another box on the Bible reading plan. We could be like Old Testament Israel. Yahweh spoke to Ezekiel the prophet one time about his people in Ezekiel thirty-three thirty-one. So this is the Lord speaking to Ezekiel the prophet about the people. He says, And they came to you, Ezekiel, as people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. See how God speaks to Ezekiel about the problem of the people being, they're hearing you, they come and listen and say, what do you have to say to us, Ezekiel? What do you have to say to us from the Lord? But all the while, they've got lustful talk in their mouths. They're not being slow to speak when God is speaking. They're talking about what they want. They're not talking about what God wants of us. They're not talking about what God has done for us. They're talking about what we want, our lusts, our desires. The reality of self-deceived professing Christians is throughout the New Testament. Let me quote to you the strongest of these words, perhaps, in 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know Jesus but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. We can say all day long. We can make professions, verbal professions of faith, all day long. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I know Jesus. But John says, you can say that all day, but if you're not pursuing obedience to His commands, you are a liar. A liar. That is to say... When you say, I know Jesus, you are lying. You do not really know Jesus. The truth, the word of truth, this implanted word that James is describing, this gospel is not in you if you're not seeking to obey Jesus. David Platt says, those who have accepted Jesus, obey Jesus. To think any differently is to live in deception To say, I have accepted Jesus, but then to live contrary to Jesus is to deceive oneself. Well, James gives us an illustration of what this could be like. He points to the familiar image of the man in the mirror. Let me read verses 23 to 25 to get the whole comparison before us. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the analogy works like this. You look in the mirror because you're trying to find stuff wrong with you. And then you should fix it, right? You see something wrong with your face? You should probably fix it. You should do something about that. But the picture here is that you look in the mirror, you see defects, and then you just go about your way and forget about the big defects and don't do anything about it. That's the illustration. I just want to see, I want you to see this comparison really clearly. So you can put that next slide up on the screen so we don't get bogged down in some of the details of the comparison because there's a major point that I want to make sure that we get here and don't miss it. So he compares with the, the man with the mirror on the one hand to the believer with the word, the believer with the law, as he says, on the other hand. So the man with the mirror looks intently, he studies his face in the mirror, and then he goes away and doesn't do anything about what he saw. He just forgets about it. But the believer with the word, The believer who holds the Bible in his hands and listens to it being preached, looks into it and perseveres. 
news. That is to say, he keeps listening, he keeps looking, he keeps digging, he keeps going back and back and back to the Bible. But he acts on what he sees. Let me just ask you, can you remember a time, and I I hope this is normal for you, I hope this is your regular pattern of life, but can you remember a time where you heard a sermon or where you were reading something in your Bible and that day, That day, you actually changed something in your life because of what you read. I hope that's the normal pattern of your lives. But that's the challenge here. When we read God's Word, when we hear the Gospel and what it calls us to do, how it calls us to live, we've got to respond. We can't just forget about it. But the promise is, He will be blessed in His doing. Not blessed because of his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. The blessing comes from God as we seek to obey. Not in payment for our obedience. Not because we've obeyed. Blessing doesn't come as a reward for those who obey. It simply comes to us as we obey. We are blessed in the doing, in the obedience. Don Carson says, it's not simply saying, make sure you are even ever more obedient and perform adequately well, and then maybe God will bless you. No, you live out what it means to live under the gospel. You do what it says. You become a gospel person. Now, James refers to the word as law, which can be jarring for us. We're used to thinking about the gospel as one thing and the law as something else. And you might even be used to thinking about it as the law is one thing and the gospel is opposed to the law. That was a problem throughout church history, especially since the Reformation. How do we understand the relationship between the gospel and law? And James is happy to refer to the law here in tight connection with the gospel. If the word of truth that he's described is the gospel, and I believe it is, then what he's talking about, then what is he talking about with this law, the perfect law, the law of liberty? Well, I think, he, I think we can say that he's talking about what we might call gospel obligations. Gospel obligations. Folks, the Christian life has a law. We are free from the Mosaic law. We are not bound by it so that we don't relate to God We don't earn approval from God by our obedience to the Mosaic law. But we are obligated to live a certain way as Christians. To obey is to enjoy our freedom. There are commands in the New Testament, 49 of them in this book alone. And God really means for us to obey them. Law is a good word for it. But it's a law that is of liberty. It's a law that actually sets us free. It's a law that frees us to be servants of God. You see, we've been set free by the gospel. We've been set free from being enslaved to sin and self and Satan. And we were all enslaved to those three realities from birth until we became believers in Jesus. And when we did, we were set free from all of that. But then we were set free to serve to serve Jesus, to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus, to keep the law of liberty. The gospel and the law are interconnected. We, are, we dare not separate them. And that's been the truth throughout the Bible. God always rescues His people by grace, and then He obligates them to live a certain way. That's always the pattern. But there are real commands, and He really does call for our obedience here, but it's true freedom. It's true liberty to obey these commands. And it is the place of blessing in the life of the Christian. All of this that we've been talking about, pursuing obedience to this word, responding to it with a welcoming attitude, receiving it and seeking to do it, to practice it, to be obedient to it, is the way I think that James is suggesting that we will not allow our desires to lead us into sin. To take us back to verses 13 to 15. When our desires, particularly in the midst of trials, would lead us into sin and rejecting God, the key is to hear the gospel again. 
to hear again what God has done for us to save us from our sin and how He has set us free to live differently, to not serve ourselves, but to serve Jesus, who died for us and rose from the dead for us. But it's hard in the midst of a trial to seek to obey God. When we're being pressed with a trial, we're being squeezed by life, it's the last thing on our minds sometimes to pay close attention to the details of what God wants me to do. I mean, in that moment, as we're going through a trial, very often we're just in survival mode. We just want to survive from one moment to the next. And we don't want to get bogged down and try to think too hard about what is God calling me to do in the midst of this? I'm just trying to get through it. But it's in that moment that the thing that we need the most is to seek to obey God in the midst of it. That is the great temptation for us in our trials when we're being squeezed like that is to just run away from God. To run away, to ignore Him, to forget about Him. And we don't want to worry about the fine specifics about obeying God in the midst of a trial. But that's what we need to do. That's what we have to do is keep pursuing obedience to God even in the midst of a trial. In verses 26 and 27, he turns to painting a more precise picture of what this could look like. And he uses the term religion or religious. These verses are probably familiar to you, but people often say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. We need to throw that saying in the garbage. The Bible says that Christianity is a religion. Now, it's not a religion the way that our culture might define a religion. But a religion is simply the outward expression of devotion to a God. That's all it means. So how do you show that you are devoted to Jesus? However you answer that question is religion. It's not a bad word. (laughs) We shouldn't try to deceive people in the world by saying it's not a religion. It's just a relationship. It's a religion that is based on a relationship. Don't separate what the Bible keeps together. It's a biblical word. Religious devotion is perhaps a good way to put it. And there's a particular way that religious devotion is supposed to look, according to James. And I wonder, if we hadn't already read the passage, and if you weren't familiar with these verses, how would you define it? How would you answer the question, what comprises Christian religion? What makes up that religion? In verse 26, he begins, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he again raises the possibility of self-deception here. A person can think that he's devoted to Jesus. He can believe that about himself. He can say, I think I'm a Christian. I think I'm a follower of Jesus. I think I'm devoted to the true God. But if this person who thinks that way, who claims that, does not bridle his tongue, James says that he is deceiving his heart. That's a very dangerous position to be in. To deceive one's own heart is a scary place to be. He says that the key indicator here is the bridling of the tongue, the keeping under control of our words. The misuse of the tongue is something that James is going to talk about throughout the letter. In fact, he revisits this repeatedly in every single chapter. At least once he mentions some misuse of the tongue. It's a major topic that keeps cropping up. And he does so, I think, because it's an important indicator of whether we are truly following Jesus or not. David Platt says, when you speak... You tell the truth about your heart. The way men speak to and about their wives tells the truth about their hearts. Likewise, the way women speak to and about their husbands tells the truth about their hearts. The way you speak to and about your friends, the way you speak to your family, the way you speak about other people, all of these things are indicators of whether or not your faith is real. If you are engaging in gossip, if your words are biting, if they are cursing, if they are angry, then be careful. If your words are frequently 
Platt says, inundated with trivialities, you may be showing that your religion is worthless. James is saying that the tongue is the test of true religion. Now, Platt goes on to say that it's not the only test, but it sure is a big one. John MacArthur says, the tongue is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but is one of the most reliable. It has been estimated that the average person will speak some 18,000 words in a day, enough for a 54-page book. In a year, that amounts to 66 800-page volumes. Many people, of course, speak much more than that. Up to one-fifth of the average person's life is spent talking. It would make sense that our words would reveal something about our heart. And isn't that what Jesus said? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, as James paints the picture of religion, true religion, what it means to express our devotion to Jesus, he doesn't mention any of the things that we might typically think about. We come to church, we listen to God's Word, we fellowship with other believers, we pray, we sing. All of those are marks that we might say are the religious things that we do. We do devotions, right? We read devotionals. Well, what is that? That's a practice, an outward expression of our devotion to Jesus. We read our Bible every day, ideally, because we're devoted to Jesus. But James doesn't mention any of those things. Instead, he focuses on warning us about the danger of not bridling our tongue on the one hand, and he says that if you're doing all of those things, I think he's assuming all of the typical stuff that we might think about as expressions of devotion uh, to our Lord. If you're doing all of those things, attending church regularly, praying, singing, reading your Bible all the time, but you're not at the same time keeping your tongue under control your religion, all that other stuff that you're doing is worthless. It's an empty sham. All the church activity you can fit in a given week might prove to be worthless religion. And worthless religion is actually idolatry. The word he uses for worthless here is used throughout the Bible connected specifically to idolatry. Let me give you one example. Jeremiah 51, 17 and 18 the Greek translation of these verses uses this same word. Jeremiah 51, 17 and 18. This is in the Bible, so it's not my words. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless. And at the time of their punishment, they shall perish. James is saying... We can be coming to church, we can be singing, praying, reading our Bible, reading devotional books. If we're not bridling our tongue, all of those things might prove to be worshiping someone other than Jesus. This is a strong warning. Verse 27, he turns to a positive portrayal, a positive description of what's a core element, what cannot be missing for it to be true religion. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's interesting that he mentions these two things and interesting in our setting today because in our culture, in our political climate, throughout my lifetime at least, it might have been different before I was around, I don't know, but you could characterize the political left the left side of the political spectrum and Christians who want to associate with that side as people who are interested in social justice. Let's make sure that we're taking care of orphans and widows. Let's make sure that we're taking care of the homeless in our communities. Let's make sure that we're doing social things and taking care of the people. And the other side of the political spectrum, the right... The conservative end has typically been focused on, we need to make sure we maintain our moral purity. We make sure that we're living upright. Those two ends of the spectrum of our political climate, James puts them together and says that as Christians, as churches, you've got to have them both. You must have them together. 
Here's an unusual fact about orphans in the ancient world that you might not know. A person could be called an orphan in the ancient world if they lost one parent. You lose a father, you're an orphan. You lose a mother, you're an orphan. That's incredibly significant to me because what James is implying here by referring to caring for orphans, among other things, is that the church has a responsibility to fill the gap in the home of a single parent. I'm not saying that the church is supposed to replace the absentee father, but we've got to do more than criticize the absentee father. We actually have to step in and seek to fill the hole that the absentee father leaves. James is saying that that's an aspect of pure and undefiled religion before God. There are single parents among us, and we as a church have an obligation, a responsibility to step in to provide support for the loss that's there. It doesn't matter how the loss happened. It doesn't matter. We need to be caring for the families that have these great losses. Orphans and widows are both examples, representative examples of those who have lost the most important relationships in their lives. And James is saying that we have a responsibility to fill in for those losses to some degree. Now, it's interesting here that he specifically calls God the Father right here. In this moment, he just tacks it on. He is God the Father. And I think he wants to remind us here that God has adopted us into his family. All of us together, God has drawn us into his family. We are all his children. We were not his children before we became believers in Jesus. We were not. He adopted us into His family and made us His children by grace. And so since we're in His family, He calls us to imitate our Father. We should carry on the family resemblance and be like our dad. We are to imitate our Father. And our Father, God, has a special concern for orphans and widows. Special concern for those who have lost in this world, in this life. So we should imitate our Father in His care for orphans and widows and reach out to those people who have lost the most significant relationships to them. We cannot replace what's been lost. We cannot replace, for example, the intimacy that's been lost for a widow. But we can provide some measure of companionship to remedy the aloneness that's there. We can seek to alleviate some of the financial burden that's often there when a spouse is lost. And God calls us to do, to do whatever we can in that case. I suspect that the reference to orphans and widows is intended to be representative. There are other classes of people that have needs like this. The handicapped, for example. The homeless, for example. Are we attending to the needs of those who are handicapped in our families or in our communities? Are we... Are there those in our community that we could be reaching out to help? That's the question on the table to consider for us as a church. The point here in all of this is that if we're truly welcoming the Word, we will be welcoming other people. We will welcome each other. We will welcome people that are different than us. We will welcome people who have lost significantly as uncomfortable as it might make us. We will welcome people if we welcome the Word. The other aspect that James mentions here is keeping oneself unstained from the world. I hope you know this. The culture around you will tarnish you. doesn't matter if you were living in 1950s America or whatever golden age you want to pretend there ever was. Every culture on this planet that is made up of sinful human beings will tarnish Christians. It will. It has that tendency. And so what James calls for here is not to withdraw from the world. He calls for the same thing that John calls for in 1 John, to be in the world, but not of it. To live in the world, to engage with culture, to engage with non-believers, and at the same time, to stand apart and not allow the taint, the stain, the dirt to rest on us. 
Now, ultimately, we have great confidence in this because Jesus has made us clean by His blood permanently. And so we stand in this world, in a world that's filled with dirt and grime and muck. And we stand as people who are truly cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Nevertheless, we must still stand firm against the onslaught of dirt and filth that could get on us and tarnish us and tarnish our reputation. The claim to be Christians in this world, the claim to be followers of Jesus, is to do like Jesus did. And how did Jesus live in this world but not of it? What did He do? He was a friend of sinners. He ate with them. He went to them. He touched them. You remember the story at the end of Mark 1? It's one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. I preached that text as my candidating sermon here back in June of last year. Jesus touched the leper. And in their world, if you touch a leper, you get dirty. But Jesus touched a leper and he didn't get dirty. The leper got clean. That's now our responsibility in this world. It's to reach out in a dirty world and bring cleanness. We're the only people who can. We have this gospel implanted in us. Paul used the imagery of a jar of clay. Remember, it's not because we're so impressive. We're just a clay pot. Breakable, fragile, ugly. But God has put His gospel, His saving power in us. We carry it wherever we go. We must speak it to people around us. We must take it out of the jar. Open it up for people. Let them see it. Let them hear it. The end of the matter is this. The power to resist the influence of the world is found in the gospel. And the strength we need to endure trials without giving in to temptation is found in the gospel. Thus, at all times... But especially in trials, we must pour ourselves ever increasingly into our Bibles. We must draw from Scripture the proper perspectives, as Pastor Ken taught us last week, regarding our trials. And it's vitally important that we are seeking to obey whatever we find in the Scriptures, even when life is hard and we're pressed through trials. The pursuit of obedience doesn't have to hang heavy on our shoulders as an uncarryable burden. When Jesus puts us to work, calls us to take up His yoke, to shoulder His burden of commands, He says it is a light burden. Remember? Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 Jesus says, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus calls those who have been working so hard to earn something from God. Jesus calls those who have been trying so hard to do what they think is right, And he says, rest from that kind of work, that kind of labor. But then he immediately calls us to work for him. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. The rest we need is not a rest from working, from obeying God. It is a rest in obeying God. We are called to a restful work. Our performance is not what saves us. Jesus has done the effective, decisive work that satisfies God's demands and pays the penalty for our failures to measure up. Trusting Jesus does not set us free to sin. Trusting Jesus sets us free to work out of His acceptance and not for it. Verse 30, Jesus says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's still a burden to carry. The yoke is a working metaphor. The Apostle John understood this. He understood that loving God means obeying His commandments. He put it like this in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And then he adds, and His commandments are not burdensome. We fail to obey as we ought as Christians. Right? These commands in James seem particularly difficult, at least they do to me. But we have to see them through the lens of the gospel, recognizing 
that Jesus died to pay for our failure to obey these commands. Jesus died to pay for our failure to bridle our tongues. Jesus died for our failure to listen well to God's Word all the time. Jesus died for our forgetfulness, our lack of diligence in applying God's Word to our circumstances. Jesus died to pay for our neglect of the needy people around us. But Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, poured out the Holy Spirit into each of our hearts, and He sits at the right hand of God today, praying for each one of us. You know what He's praying for? He's asking the Father to preserve us in our faith. He's asking the Father to continue empowering us by the Spirit to obey His commandments, to keep pursuing obedience to His Word. We fall flat on our faces sometimes trying to obey God. And sometimes we fall flat on our faces trying to run away from God. If we're truly His children, God Himself has promised to keep us moving in the right direction and to guarantee that we will cross the finish line successfully. Don't let your struggles to believe, your struggles to obey, move you to abandon the pursuit, to quit the race. In your trials, in your experiences of pain and suffering, the temptation to quit, the temptation to cut corners will come. When it does... James says, turn your attention back to God's Word and find there the strength that you need to endure and find the direction you need to keep obeying Jesus in the midst of the trial. I'm going to close by quoting lyrics from a non-Christian song. With some tweaking, this song could have a wondrous theological depth. The song is from the recent movie, Frozen 2. I have a a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter. I am entitled to watch and enjoy princess movies. (laughs) The song is called The Next Right Thing. I won't spoil it for you by providing the context, but one of the characters is singing about moving on after loss while the pain and grief is still fresh. One movement of the song goes like this, and I will not sing it. You shall thank me for that. One movement of the song goes like this. I don't know if I can say it. This grief has a gravity. It pulls me down. But a tiny voice whispers in my mind, You are lost. Hope is gone. You can think of that as the temptation that James speaks of that comes from inside of you when you're in the midst of a trial. But you must go on and do the next right thing. She goes on to reflect on her loss. Can there be a day beyond this night? I don't know anymore what is true. I can't find my direction. I'm all alone. I think our trials, our suffering, has a tendency to isolate us from time to time. Magnifies our sense of aloneness. Just do the next right thing. Take a step, step again. It is all that I can to do the next right thing. I won't look too far ahead. It's too much for me to take. But break it down to this next breath, this next step, this next choice is one that I can make. So I'll walk through this night, stumbling blindly toward the light, and do the next right thing. Go look the song up. I find the music particularly beautiful. The song begins deeply sorrowful in its tone and tempo. She's even weeping as she begins singing. But you can feel the hope swelling as the tempo quickens. It's as she seeks to do the next right thing. Focuses on doing just what she knows to be right for this moment. That her hope rises. That her endurance strengthens. Maybe that's something of what James depicts for us here. And of course, for us, it's the scriptures that shape and define what the next right thing will be. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your 
powerful word. We're so grateful that you speak. And the way that you speak changes everything. You spoke ages ago and the world came into existence. You spoke at a point in time in our lives and we were brought from death to life. And now we depend moment by moment on your continued speaking. It is even your continued speaking that holds the universe together continually. But it's also your speaking that holds my life together moment by moment. And it's your word that we are dependent on to keep going forward when life crushes us and when life is hard. Thank you that you speak. Thank you that you put your spirit and your word inside of us. The power is here. It's in us. And you're with us to ensure that we're going to make it. We're going to keep going in the right direction. We're going to cross the finish line. You guarantee it by your power and by your son's death. Thank you for preserving us that way. Thank you that there is nothing that can happen that will take us off the playing field, that will take us out of the race. We live with you now and forever, and we seek to enjoy the life that you've given us. As hard as it may be sometimes, would you give us the strength to count it all joy when we fall into various trials? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.